Now, as we've been going through Colossians 2, it's been building, and it will continue to build. And in, in, in verse 6, we, we saw that as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Such an important verse in the Bible, because we received Christ as a gift by his grace, and therefore we had faith in his grace, just like the thief on the cross, where Jesus said, Father, forgive him, and they know not what they do. And the thief said, man, even though I've sinned my whole life, I was even mocking Jesus a few years, a few minutes ago. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Because it was about grace that we're saved as a gift from God. It's not of ourselves. It's not a quality we have had in the past or have in the present or might have in the future. It's not of our works that God saved us because we have all these good works to do and, and therefore we'll prove that we're saved by all our good works. No, it's not by any works, past, present, or future. We walk thankful to Christ for giving us the gift of salvation. And we're gonna talk more about that here today. And in verse 20, or verse eight, he, he says, you're lacking nothing, guys. Don't let anybody cheat you through philosophy, empty deceit, traditions of men, according to the principle of this world. Morgan is going to elaborate on what he means in a minute, in another study on that. But we looked at last week, you are complete in him. He's the head of all principalities and powers. You lack nothing. You need no new philosophy. You need no traditions of men. There is not a period to make or a T to cross. Jesus said it all in his final words on the cross, it is finished, to telestai, which literally says paid in full. All our debt has been paid. You don't need some new teaching on circumcision or baptism or what foods you to eat or what day to worship on. You don't need any additions. And anybody who tries to give you additions for you to be saved or overcome sin, you see, man, I'm really struggling with sin. Anybody not, please come up here and preach. Okay? Yes, we're in a human sinful body. Every day we wrestle. And if we win, we have a crown in heaven, James says, over winning over sin. But if not, the righteous man falls seven times and gets up seven times. We confess our sin. He's faithful, righteous, forgive us, and cleanse us. But yet there's people going, well, have you been circumcised? Well, no, I haven't. Well, that's why you're struggling with sin. Were you baptized in this and this and way? Well, pff, that's it. Once you do that, man, you're going to start conquering uh, as a Christian. What are you eating? Oh, that's unclean. That's not kosher. Boy, once you get that diet right, man, you're going to be living righteously wrong. All of these are lies. And so we're going to look at that in verse 11. In him. He makes this a point throughout the letter as he did in Ephesians. He's going to say in verse 11, in him. In verse 12, he's going to say with him. And then in verse 13, he's going to say together with him. It's with him, in him. You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by circumcision of Christ. So historically, you've got to understand that Christianity in that first century was very connected to Judaism because virtually all the pastors and all the apostles and people that went out had been raised as a Jew. 
And let me tell you, a lot of the Jewish traditions, that's a lot of traditions, whether they come from Mexico or Italy or Europe, there's a lot of wonderful traditions. We, I have Christmas traditions. They're not in the Bible, but I, do, I did them with my kids. My parents did them. Their parents did them. And those traditions make the celebration of Christmas more meaningful. So traditions are great, man. The, the Sabbath meal that Jews have every Friday night, man, I wish I had done that with my kids. Probably on a Friday night because of the high school football games that would have thrown everything out. Probably would have had a Thursday night. That seems to be more of a, a night that they can spare when they were younger. But, you know, to have a Thursday Seder meal or a Sabbath meal of, of just where the family is focused, all electricity can't be used, uh, if you know what I mean, um, and we just have to be together playing games, enjoying each other. It would, have been, it would have been a great tradition, but that wouldn't have made me more saved. That wouldn't have helped me overcome sin, even though traditions are great. But, but historically, this first generation, it was a struggle. For example, in Acts 15, they, they went out, and, and uh, Paul was preaching the gospel, and all these Gentiles getting saved, and right on his hills were these Pharisees who had got saved, who were saved, but they couldn't let go of the Jewish tradition. And so behind Paul, he, he, they were saying that these Gentiles had to be circumcised. He grabbed them by the ears and took them back to Jerusalem. And we learn Acts 15.1, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I, I'm, you know, Jesus died on the cross, paid for all of our sins, but you won't make it to heaven if the skin around your penis is not clipped. It sounds sort of ridiculous to us now, doesn't it? But to them, that was a major thing. This is the law of God. You've got to keep the law of God. But this ended up where Peter eventually said, guys, are we going to lay a law on the Gentiles that we ourselves never kept? Outside of getting circumcised the eighth day, we've broken the rest of the laws. And we had nothing to do with getting circumcised on the eighth day. That was our parents. We can't put that on them. No, no, it, it's clear. The only thing Jesus said is you're saved by grace. We were, and so all the Gentiles as well. In Galatians 6, that was a big issue in the Galatia region of Turkey of those days. And in verse 12 and 13, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. That, that somehow it's like, oh yeah, the Gentile church I'm pastoring, they've all been circumcised. And the Jews come down, were they circumcised? Oh yeah, everybody's been circumcised. That guy over there was 80 years old and it was hard for him, but he got circumcised. He goes on to say in Galatians 5, 11 to 12, and I, brethren, if I preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? I am telling you not to be circumcised, and these guys coming down claiming to be Christians or are even Christians are, are, are persecuting me, saying that I'm the heretic for not getting the Gentile circumcised. Then the offense of the cross has ceased. What's the offense? There is no tradition. There is no law. There is no addition. It's simply by faith alone. And Paul said, this is why I'm persecuted. This is why I'm offensive, saying there is no work 
It's not of yourself. It's not of works. And I suffered persecution for that. And I was, the, the message of grace is offensive. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, it, it, the King James has made this really nice, you know. Literally what he is saying, I wish those Jews would really get dedicated and become eunuchs. Don't stop with the foreskin. Go for the whole thing. Those eunuchs and other religions, man, they're really committed. They didn't do just a little clip-clip. They went whack the whole thing. So Paul here is being vulgar purposely. You know, don't let your dedication stop just with circumcision. Go all the way. So the, the real issue here is we're going to discover it's not circumcision. Next is going to be baptism. It's when people try to turn in any additional ritual act thing you need to do, group you need to join, anything in addition that saves you. It is a lie from the pit of hell. So most of these Gentiles were not um, circumcised, and they're evidently a little upset by this because some of the church is getting circumcised. And, and Paul assures them that their circumcision in the body is not important because, notice, in him you also were circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. Think about this a minute. He's saying that Christ on the cross had a lot more <laughs> cuts than are necessary. You do not need to be cut because Christ was cut. And what happens, we, we learn in Romans uh, 6, 5, that we, had, we were united together in the likeness of his death. You were circumcised because Christ on the cross was circumcised with many cuts. In Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Christ took our circumcision on his body on the cross. You don't just have one cut, you have many cuts because Christ had many cuts. So you do not need a circumcision because Christ, you were united with him when Christ was circumcised on the cross, so to speak. That is the circumcision of the heart, we'll discover. And he says, this circumcision of Christ was made without hands. In other words, the Jewish circumcision that's done by the parents on the eighth day is not necessary whatsoever. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even necessary for Abraham. What? Look at Romans 4. Paul points this out. Does this blessing, he says in verse 9 through 12, does this blessing then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? Do you guys remember Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness? Important verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. But remember Genesis 15. Abraham, God said, go outside and look at the stars of heaven. That's how many kids you're going to have. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Important. So when was he accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was uncircumcised. Because it's not till Genesis 17 that God gives Abraham the command of circumcision. So when was Abraham declared righteous? Chapter 15, while he was uncircumcised. 
This is an important note. He says, no, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of the, of the circumcision as a seal of righteousness or a guarantee of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe, through they, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So the church, the New Testament church, we are all children of Abraham. And some of Abraham's children are circumcised because they came up in a, in a Jewish family. And I guarantee you, there's, there's Christians all through Jerusalem, all through Israel today, and they were all circumcised on the eighth day, not for them to be made righteous, but because God commanded Abraham and his descendants to do so, to identify them as Abraham's descendants. But God's children also are uncircumcised Gentiles. So he is the father of the uncircumcised and the circumcised. Romans chapter 2, Paul makes it this abundantly clear. In verse 28 to 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. What? But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision that of the heart in the spirit. Not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now in this text, Paul is, is making a word play because the word Jew is to be pray, to praise. That's what the word Jew means. And so if you go back and, and he is saying, you're not a one who's giving praise to God who got circumcised outwardly. You're one who's giving praise and glory to God when you're circumcised in the heart, inwardly, by the Spirit. And therefore, your Jewishness is not from the flesh, but your Jewishness is from God. In Jeremiah 4, he says it really, blunt, really bluntly. He says, circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskin of your heart. In Jeremiah 29, 26, you are, you, all this nation is uncircumcised. Now, let me tell you, at this point, Jeremiah said that they were all circumcised. <laughs> but he says, he goes on to say, you're all uncircumcised. All the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. And Moses makes that clear. In Deuteronomy 10, in, verse, in chapter 30, he, he says, it's about your hearts. Not, not, it's not about you circumcising your body into story. No, it's, it's, it's just the beginning that you grow up going, I'm circumcised. Why? Because like Abraham, we need to walk by faith in the grace of God. We need to believe in God. And, 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 and so while you walk along the way and while you sit down and while you, you rise up, be teaching your kids the truths of God and put them in their hearts far more important, he says, and your kids are uncircumcised in the most important way. 
in the heart. Notice what he says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and what? The heart of your descendants. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So if you did the physical circumcise on the eighth day, you have not circumcised your kids. You only did it in the least important way. Your kids aren't circumcised until you have circumcised them in heart, teaching them to love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so he makes it clear that the circumcision in which we were circumcised with Christ, what did it cut away? He says right there, putting off the body of sins of the flesh. Do you see that? So the circumcision of the heart is where we now no longer have the power of sin ruling over us. A non-believer, they don't have the power of the Spirit in them. They don't have the knowledge of God in their hearts, even though it might be in their minds. But when we believe God's Spirit comes into us, not just so we have the Spirit of God into us, so we can fight sin and win over sin. And so Christ put away all the condemnation sin can ever bring. Remember Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. You know what we learned about those wounds? His skin broke. They beat him so badly. His face no longer looked human, Isaiah 52 says. His face was black and blue and bloodied and bloated and cut. He was bruised for our iniquities. So for our transgressions, now for our iniquities, he was cut through the bruising. The chastisement, or if you would, the cross of peace was upon him. How many times was he cut with the cross? And by his stripes, you are healed again, cut. Cut in the wounds, cut in the bruise, cut in the chastisement and the crucifixion, cut in the stripes. Boy, 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you don't have this verse memorized, you really ought to. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you hear that? He became sin for us. But when he rose again, our sin was crucified. It was cut away and done away. All our lawless deeds have been healed. And, and so we also, when we died with Christ and raised again, we rose again circumcised in heart. So beware if somebody tries to give you some ritual, some philosophy, some tradition of men like circumcision. Remember Philippians 3.3, Paul says to the church there as well. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you is safe. Beware of the dogs. Who are the dogs? Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation, those who are wanting you to get circumcised. Paul calls them mutilators. Oh, there's some guys down from Jerusalem, the Pharisees that believed in Jesus. Uh, they're mutilators. And that sounds like a movie, right? Um, the mutilators. And then in verse 3, he says the most important thing here, Philippians 3.3, 3, for we are the circumcision. Why? What's the signs of being circumcised? You worship God in spirit. You rejoice in Christ Jesus. And you have no confidence in the flesh. 
He didn't say here, you know you're circumcised because you're not sinning. You know you're circumcised because you don't ever want to sin again and, and you never do. Even your flesh is born again. Even your flesh wants to read the Bible. Even your flesh wants to go to church. Even your flesh wants to live righteously. Is that true? Does that mean you're not circumcised? No. Let me ask you, do you did you worship the God today in spirit? Do, do, do you guys rejoice in Christ Jesus? Thank you, Jesus, for the work. Do you have no confidence in the flesh? <laughs> Our righteousness is filthy rags before God's righteousness. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect to get into heaven. We have no confidence that our flesh will ever accomplish that. Well, verse 12 now, we're going to look at the area of baptism. So there was a group of people saying, you got to get circumcised. There's another group saying, ah, it's not circumcision. It's baptism. That's the New Testament circumcision. So buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through the faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. There's two important words here. Buried, but raised. And we cannot signify that the most important one here is raised. When Christ died, we died with him. But is that the end of the story? He raised again from the dead, conquering our sin and conquering death. Do you remember Martha and, and, John, and John 11? Lord, I, I, know, I know Lazarus will raise again on the last day. I am the resurrection. And what does it say right here in verse 12? We are with him. We're with Christ. We just saw that a minute ago. We're in him. Now here we're with him. And because when Christ died, we died with him. Christ rose again. We rose again with him. This is what's important. And so the baptism is not accomplishing that. The baptism is simply identifying that. So when a person's baptized, it doesn't save them. There is the church of Christ that believes in what's called baptismal regeneration. And they teach that the actual, you're not, your sins have not been washed away until you're baptized. And you've got to be baptized, of course, in the church of Christ. And you've got to be a member of the church of Christ or you don't make it to heaven. But if you're baptized correctly in the church of Christ, so when they give an altar call or an invitation for people to get saved, they always have a bunch of water ready on hand. And they just like, come on right now and, and get baptized because you're not, your sins are washed away until you get baptized by us in the church of Christ. Of course, the, the question always is, the guy who started the Church of Christ in the late 1800s, his, his name was Alexander Campbell, and he was from the Presbyterian Church. And the correct question is, was the church started by a non-believer? And did he ever get baptized in the Church of Christ? He didn't. So actually, the starter of the Church of Christ is not going to make it to heaven because he, he was never baptized. It's it, always the cults and, and people add, it always gets very illogical. But also they wanted you, uh, there, there's many today that say baptism is the Old Testament circumcision. And like the Reformed Church, the extreme Calvinist, this is why they say infants got to be baptized because we got to circumcise them. New Testament circumcision, which is baptism. I was having a debate with a, an apologist in this group, and, uh, and I said, well, where in the Bible is an infant baptism? 
And he goes to the book of Acts. Remember when Paul was in prison, he starts singing and worshiping, the jail is open, and the Philippian jail is ready to kill himself. And Paul says, do your of harm. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your whole household. Right there, there's a baby baptized. And I said, dude, I happen to know for a fact that the Philippian jailer was an elderly man and all his kids were full grown. And he looked at me going, how can you know that? I said, the same way you know they had a baby. <laughs> but, but if that's their only verse in the Bible, they are on thin, thin ice. Boy, Paul talks about this in detail in Romans 6. So bear with me while I read those first seven verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know as many of us that were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, you are buried with him through baptism and death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall be in newness of life. Boy, 5 through 7 is the real key stuff here. If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Past tense, crucified, past tense that the body of sin might be done away with, and we should no longer be slaves of sin. And he who has died has been freed from sin. So what's the real significance of baptism? Is the reality that we no longer have to sin. That the non-believer, the, the control that the devil has, the control their flesh has, the control that sin has over them, they, they have no out. But as a believer, we have the power of the Spirit. We've been washed as white as snow. We were with Christ in a spiritual sense on the cross, and we were with Christ in the resurrection. And so Christ has a resurrected new body. Literally, one day we'll have the same. But now we have a newness of life already in the Spirit. You see, I think our resurrection in our new body, it's going to be like putting on a new pair of socks. Because 99% of our resurrection body has already happened in the most important areas, right? We have already been raised from the dead in 99% of the most important ways in the spirit. All we're going to get is this sweater put on, basically. This little thin piece of flesh. That's all that's going on. The real guts of the operation have already been changed. The real reality of the most important areas have already been resurrected. So when we're struggling with sin, we come and say, Lord, I am dead to sin as you right now in heaven at the right hand of your father are dead in sin. We do not have to say yes to sin. We have a power, the resurrection power of Christ. And so he, he goes on here um, to say, put, he goes on to say that we uh, are no longer slaves of sin. And then the final point on verse 12, put faith in the finished work of Christ. 
not in our works, not in baptism, not in circumcision. We need no addition. What do we need to do? We need to cling to the cross. We need to claim the blood. We need to believe in the full power of the resurrection. Isn't that what Paul said? Lord, that I might know you and the power of your resurrection. Paul lived every day in that way, to live by faith in Christ and have the, live in the resurrected, powerful life. Well, verse 13, and you being dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. We went through this in detail in Ephesians 2. You guys remember back? He says it so profoundly there. In verse 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Skipping down to verse 11 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that all that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. Martin Luther had a dream. And he, the Martin Luther brought us out of the, the, the dark age and the Reformation period. And, and in this dream, it went on forever. Satan brought out this giant book and went through it in detail and said, is there any inaccurate sin in this book of yours? And Luther had to say, no, all of that I did. Thinking it was over. And Satan pulled out another book equally as big or bigger. And then another one, and another one, and another one. And when Luther was about to to despair, he opened up the first book, and Satan forgot to tell him, on the top, it says, covered in the blood, a big giant red stain. And then he grabbed the other book, covered in the blood. The fact is, is that we were dead in our trespasses, and we We're walking exactly the way the devil wanted. We were aliens from God. (laughs) You believe in aliens? I am one. (laughs) But I'm not anymore. I, I quit being an alien. How is that possible? Well, through blood. Oh, you had green blood before. Now you're, no, not my blood, the blood of Christ. So notice here, he says trespasses. Iniquity is when you don't plan on sinning and the lust gets you or the greed or the anger and all of a sudden you're screaming and yelling or you're lusting. But transgression is where you're, you know, premeditated murder, so to speak. You know there's a clear black line. There's no small, thin gray line. And you just plan on stepping over it and you do. That's our rebelliousness, our sin. But what did Christ do? Notice this next. He has made, number one, Alive, number two, together with him. In him, with him, together with him. But notice, first of all, he has made us. 
We could not make ourselves alive. We could not get ourselves into heaven. If we had 10,000 years of righteousness, it wouldn't undo one day of our unrighteousness because we have to be perfect as God is perfect. And so God did 100% of the work, not part of the work. He made us alive. He didn't get us out of the coma and then by our good works and our religious works and getting circumcised and baptized and all this, then we eventually brought ourselves out of consciousness into life. He did it all, 100%. So the new birth is he made us alive. The cleansing is because he has forgiven us. He is the one who made us alive. He's the one who has seated us together with him. Ephesians 2, we are right now seated together with him in heavenly places in the spiritual mindset. Isn't that crazy? Where are you? I'm in heaven sitting next to Jesus on the throne. That's the real reality that the Bible says is already ours, even though we don't see it yet by the eyes of faith, we have it. Ezekiel prophesied of this day in which Paul is speaking. In Ezekiel 36, verse 25, 27, every line of this is so powerful. I have underlined it in bold. I will. Then I will in that day, speaking of what would happen through the cross, will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone, of a, make it into a heart of flesh and give you that heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and I will cause you to keep my judgments and do them. Isn't that radical? That's how powerful God's spirit is at work in you. So when you're being tempted or your body is weak or you're exhausted and getting fleshly, remember that God through the power of his spirit is strong in your life to keep you from sin. And then maybe the most important part of this verse, having forgiven us some of our trespasses. Is that what it says? He's forgiven all our trespasses. Think about it. When Christ died, we were yet 2,000 years from living on this earth. So if Christ died for my sins 2,000 years ago, did he die for my sins up to the age of 30 and after that I'm on my own? Did he die for all my sins up to the point that I got born again and then I'm on my own? Did he die for all my sins, and, but after 10-year probationary period as a Christian, I should know better. Now he, I, he passes the baton to me, and now I'm responsible for my own sins. Or did Christ, 2,000 years advanced, look at my sins of my whole life and pay for all of them? This is what the Bible clearly talks about. It's a grace that's hard to imagine. Interesting, the word forgiveness here is the word charizomai. You already knew that, of course. And this is the verb to forgive, but it is actually the root of that word is charisis, the word grace. So really, it's not just God's forgiveness, but God has 
forgiven us through his grace. God has graciously forgiven us. This reminds me of that Hebrews 10. We come boldly to the throne of grace. And there is our high priest who sympathizes with us, comforts us, loves on us. Boy, there's so many verses I had to really be careful. So I only put four of them in there. Um, Psalms 130, verse 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? If you judge a man according to your righteousness, we're all goners. But note, what does it say in Psalms 130, verse 4? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared or people honor you or in awe of you. In Micah 7, 18, who is the God like you? Pardon iniquities, passing over transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. Isaiah 1, verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Do you hear the passion from God? Did you know God wants you to go to heaven more than you want to go to heaven? Did you know God wants you to be as white as snow without spot, without blemish, more than you do? Did you know God wants you to be forgiven more than you want to be forgiven? Isn't that radical? God is for us, never against us. But he is for us with a greater passion than we're even for ourselves. And finally, in Romans 4, verse 5 through 8, but to him who who does not work, but believes. Notice here, belief is not a work according to the Bible. We're saved without works and believing is not a work. So the one who does not work and believing is not a work, believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith will be accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So God declares it to be true, even though we can't see it or touch it or feel it, it is done. And David saw this. I think he saw it after his sin with Bathsheba and he wrote Psalm 23. Surely his goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think he got it. And he says, oh, the blessedness Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. You know, when I'm sharing the Lord, at times I'll ask people, you know, have you sinned? Yeah. I said, have you wronged somebody really horribly and felt really bad about it? Sure. Did you ask them for forgiveness? I did. And did you, did you feel 100% better after that? No, I didn't. I said, you know why that is? Because as much as you sinned against a person, you actually sinned against God in a greater way. And the reason your heart can't rejoice in total forgiveness is because you need also a greater forgiveness from God. This is why Jesus paid for your sins on the cross, that he can forgive them. It's a real reality that we have, like love and hate and wind, we, we know it's there, a, a deeper 
craving for forgiveness. It's there in every single human being. Well, verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This word, it's interesting because the handwriting is literally being written by hand. And almost always, it's referring to a debt, and the person signifies that he does indeed own that debt. So clearly, in the hearers of the first century mind, they would have heard exactly that. A debt you owed and a debt you agree that you owe. And that, again, Jesus on the cross, paid in full. But it's a strong word, wiped out. It's, it's wiped off. It's canceled out. It's blotted out. But understand, it's with the understanding that no future debt can be had. So imagine if I, God has this big giant whiteboard and your sins are being written on there, da-da-da-da-da, and then all of a sudden you say, Lord, forgive me for those sins. Oh, okay, erase them. And it's like, you know how erasers work. You can still sort of see it under there, right? You know. But, you know, they, they get to work and they try to get those, those things out. And then the, once again, when Christ died on the cross, the whiteboard was taken and crushed into powder. And now when we sin, there is no place to even write our sins. So there's actually two ways of what was the handwritings of requirement, the written by hand. One, some think, is the law. The 613 laws of the Torah. The first five books of the Bible. I think that could be true. In Galatians, it says, Curses everyone who hangs on the tree, and curses everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law. So we're all cursed. And so those handwritings of, of the law clearly making us guilty, right? I mean, if you're on a freeway and there's no speeding sign and the, the cop pulls you over and says, hey, you're speeding, what's the speed? Well, we don't have any speed limit. Then you can't give him a ticket, right? So the law made it clear that you have violated, you have sinned. So he took that out of the way. Now, when we sin, there is no condemnation of that sin. When we sin, there is no legal um, condemnation of that sin. I can't think of a better word. So secondly, and this is what I actually lean a little more towards. I think it's maybe referring to both. But I think it's referring to those records of God of all our sins that I just talked about. Listen to Revelation 20 and see if you see this in verse 12 through 15. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So clearly there's a book of life. 
with everybody who's believed their names are in that. If your name's not in that book of life, there's another set of books open. And there it's, God becomes your judge, your condemner, all of the works that you did. I mean, the main sin is that you did not believe the love of the truth. You did not receive. God loves you and gave his only begotten son for you. But yet all of the things said and done will be in condemnation to God. But not us anymore. There's no more place. There's no more record of our sin the moment we believe. God now deals with us as a father to a child. God deals with us as a shepherd to his sheep. Who has the responsibility in this relationship? The child or the father? Who's got the responsibility, the sheep or the shepherd? And God relates to us as a husband to the wife. And if you look at that in Ephesians 5, the whole point of that is the husband is the head of the wife. He's got the responsibility of the spiritual headship in the home and to make sure his wife lives on earth and makes it to the end spiritually doing well. That's his, your responsibility. But also we, as the bride of Christ, collectively as a church, Jesus is our head of our marriage, so to speak, in an analogy. This is why he says in Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 27, husband, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave for her. What's the relationship? He's the servant. He's the one giving. He's the one. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. I, you know, all of the jokes and all of the pictures I have is a person dies and he wakes up in the cloud and after the fog stops a minute, he sees the pearly gates and he starts walking slowly. And there's a big angel. Oh, you know, you may get in, you may not. Guys, when we breathe our last, Jesus, like Eve, when he created Eve, or after he created Eve, he's waking Adam up, stroking his face. Adam, Adam, get up. I have one more creature for you to name. I think in the same way, we're going to be stroked by Jesus. Precious, my love, my dear one. And we're going to awaken. And we're going to see Jesus. And Jesus takes us. We're, we're absorbed with Jesus. And he presents us to the Father. With scars in his hands. Scars in his brow. A scar in his side. And he says, this is my bride. This is my sheep. And Father, you know. All my sheep are in my hand and I lose none. None shall perish. None shall come under judgment. All shall have everlasting life. We are introduced to the Father by Jesus. He's the one presenting us. And he's already told us how he's going to present us. Without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. Perfect. That's how we're going to be presented. Do we understand the importance of this? Micah talks about this in chapter 7, verse 19. He 
will again have compassion on us and will, listen to this, subdue our iniquities, conquer, dominate. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Where our sin abounds, what happens? Grace abounds more. God dominates them. God subdues them. God has power over our sin. But Lord, I I sin this much. My grace is greater. But then I sin this much. My grace is greater. Isn't that the message of the New Testament? We are living in a time where God has subdued our iniquities. Psalms 103 verse 12. He just told us they're buried in the deepest sea. Uh, As far, and now he says in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is to the west, so far has removed our transgressions from us. You know, there is a north pole and a south pole, but there is no west pole and east pole because they never meet. The west and the east never meet. Isaiah 43, 12, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Isn't that great? For my own sake. And I will remember your, I will not remember your sins. There'll never be a recollection. I mean, imagine. I have a book of my kids until they are 18. And and I have written every wrong thing they've done since they were born. And here they are at 30 going, hey, dad, would you, could you, you know, Well, I'd like to go on vacation with you, son, but have you looked at this book lately? (laughs) Do you remember back when you were eight and you said you hated me after I spanked you? I haven't had words. I haven't forgotten these things. I mean, what parent would do that? What wife or husband would do that to his wife? Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God has loved us with a perfect love. It will never fail. And then he's nailed it to the cross. Our rap sheet, our debt ledger, whether it's the Old Testament laws or whether it's the record of our sins, they've been settled forever, nailed to the cross. I wish you had time to go into it, but read Hebrews 8, verse 8 through 13. It's so clear that Christ prophesied of a new covenant. And he says, in order for the new covenant to come, the old covenant has to die. The old covenant nailed to the cross. And in this new covenant is where God does it all, like we read in the prophecies of Ezekiel and Isaiah today, that that God, through his power, gives us a new covenant. And that new covenant is based on his faithfulness, not ours. It's It's dependent on his work, not ours. He is the father, has the responsibility for the son. He is the shepherd that has responsibility for the sheep. He is the husband who has responsibility for the wife. And I will get you from A to Z. God's getting us there. Amen? Does anybody else ever think you're getting yourself there? Lord, I had a really good week. Let me see if I can do it without you this next week. It's just impossible. We're going to not be going to heaven saying, praise me, praise me. We're going to say, praise thee, praise thee, praise to you, O Lord. Well, now we're in verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, 
He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Wow, what an insight. We have this term, principalities and powers, six times in the New Testament. Every time, it's referring to Satan and his fallen angels that we call demons. So clearly here, he's saying he has disarmed all of the demonic realm, including Satan himself, and then made a public spectacle over it. This here is a clear term in the Roman society. When a general conquered, he would come back to town and they would have a ticker tape parade. And the way this would go is first all of the people that were conquered go through. Sometimes it takes a day or two or three. And after all of the people that have been captured and now enslaved go through, all of the spoil now goes through. All the gold and silver and the piles of, of carriages with all of the wealth. And then finally, last of all, the general comes and marches. This is the term used. Jesus made a spectacle of Satan. He made him a joke. He made all his demons a joke. Listen to Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue which raises itself against you in judgment shall be condemned. Who can condemn you? Can you condemn yourself? You'll get spanked if you do. Can somebody else condemn me? Only God. He alone is judge. And he shares that with nobody. Jesus in John 5 said, All judgment the Father has given to the Son, that the Son may be glorified equal with the Father, may be respected equally as the Father, honored equally as the Father. Jesus alone is judge. And the Bible makes it clear. He is never judging us. We shall never perish. We've, been, we've gone from judgment to no judgment. Perfect love casts out all fear. Now this, he goes on in Isaiah 54, 17, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. What is our inheritance? That the fact that we, have that we are also triumphing over Satan and the demons with Christ. Who's in that parade? We are. Isn't this radical? So Paul is trying to rewire the mind of the Colossians. You lack nothing, guys. You don't need any ritual, tradition, circumcision. I know everybody's got a good argument. They're all wrong. You don't need any philosophies. You don't need to start kosher some way. You don't need to start worshiping on a certain day. You don't need to have any rituals because Christ paid it all. And now... He comes to the demonic realm and says, we've already won. Now, I do need to make a note here that Ephesians 6 says, doesn't mean we're out of the battle yet, <laughs> right? Still, the principality, we don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. We, we still have a battle, but the war is won. And that's important to go in that we won. I, I have to, you know, I do like watching World War II movies. Anybody else into that? I, I am big time into that. But I, I do think part of it is because we always win. We're going into it. We won, right? 
So I, I don't mind worrying about the spiritual battle because we win. Ultimately, we win. May get bruised, may get uh, beat up here and there, but we win. And notice what he says here. Having disarmed, making a public spectacle of them. Boy, he really doubles down on this in Hebrews 2.14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And then again, he says, triumphing over in it. So Jesus is triumphing over in it. And we are in him. We are with him. We are together with him. So guess what? We also are triumphing. First John 4, 4 makes it clear here. As he talks about the Antichrist, the demonic satanic realm, He says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is what? Greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 5, 18 and 19. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born keeps himself. And the wicked one, listen, the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The entire world is wrong, just like in the days of Noah. <laughs> Noah sure looks odd. Rain, water's going to come out of the sky? Impossible. Water's never come out of the sky. It's going to flood the whole world. You're nuts. Look at this crazy old man. He got his kids into it also. I talked to his daughter-in-law the other day. She thinks he's wacky also. Yeah, we, we look like the weird ones. But in reality... It's because they're all under the sway of the wicked one. And I think we see the spirit of the Antichrist deceiving people today, right? I mean, it's, I, I don't think anybody would disagree with that because it's absolute nonsense. I mean, the transgender thing can have genders, you know? I, I, you know, I'm not going to get into that, okay? Afterwards, while we're having a donut, we'll talk about that. Probably not, probably not. First Corinthians However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now listen to verse 7 here. But we speak the wisdom of the world in a mystery, a hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you listen to this? Paul says Satan regrets his part in crucifying Christ. He thought he was, this is it, guys, we're going to win. We're winning. Look at that. Uh-huh. Crucify him, crucify him. Here, poke that other guy. Crucify him, crucify him. Get him all spit on him and pull his beard out. We want to triumph over him. Look at this. Look at this, demons. We're all triumphing over Jesus as he's carrying the cross. And he died. He breathed <laughs> They're having this demonic party. And then he raises from the dead. And they realize we're dead. We're destroyed. We lose. I had in my other notes the revelation where Satan and the demons are all cast into the second lake of fire forever and ever. But here, I hope 
Romans 8, verse 37 to 39, becomes more significant to you today. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. You know, there is no such thing as more than conquerors. Conquerors are are at the top. But somehow we go above conquering. I don't know how that's possible, but boy, you know, the Lord knows. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's not us, is it? All glory goes to Jesus. For I am persuaded. You guys persuaded? I'm persuaded also that neither death nor life, here it is, make note, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. Important. Next time you read this, hopefully you'll tie this in to Colossians 2. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors through his love for us. And I'm confident that we will be white as snow, without spot, without blemish. And Jesus is going to be looking at us with a love we have never seen before. His love for us is higher than the heavens are above the earth. His love for us, it's going to be mind-blowing. Getting out of this sinful body into heaven with no devil around, just pure Republicans, I say that, of course, in jest. I'll get a letter this week. Going to get knocked off of YouTube. Um, we're going to be in heaven. We're going we're gonna to be going, I had no idea how good new body it is. Oh, the new body. Oh, love. I've never experienced love like this. Everybody's loving as Jesus loved. Oh, my goodness. You know, we're going to say, Oh, yeah, yeah, there's tree of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Look at that mansion. <laughs> you know, hey, we're just going to be so enveloped for a couple billion years. And just this love that we've never experienced before. And then about a billion years later, we'll enjoy the other stuff. Boy, understand that Christ didn't grudgingly die for us. The joy set before him. Out of love, he did the work of the cross. Amen? Well, Lord, thank you for your work today. And we ask now that this would go deep into our hearts. And when I ask people afterwards what God spoke to them, they won't say, I don't even remember the sermon. Um, (laughs) But you would have inscribed in our hearts deep and mighty and wonderful things that we would walk differently, that we would think differently, that we would no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men lying in wait to deceit, that we would be walking on a firm foundation, trusting wholly in the finished work of Christ, trusting in those final words, it is finished, being persuaded that your death and resurrection, we were with you and all is done. We now can walk in that resurrected life. We no longer have to be slaves of sin any longer. And that we would understand that we are going to make it to the end because your grace is greater and your love never stops. 
no matter what battle we may be in, what, no matter what be thrown at us. Your love for us will endure all things, believe all things, hope all things. It will never fail. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. amen.